The scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they may malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will, by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Barbara. <clears throat> I'm going to ask you to do something that uh, we don't usually do here at National on a Sunday morning. If you'll look in those pew racks in front of you, you'll see a number of books. Um, one of those is a Bible. Pull out that Bible. And I'm going to invite you to turn to this text, which you can find on page 984. And the reason we're doing this this morning is, while Barbara read the first paragraph, there are, it's followed by two sections one that addresses slaves and the second that addresses women. And I didn't want you to think that I was trying to skip the hard bits. So I'm going to invite you to take about 30 seconds and scan those two paragraphs just to familiarize yourself with the flow of Peter's argument. For time reasons, we're not going to take the time to read both of those paragraphs, but just take a, take a moment and familiarize yourselves, and then leave the Bibles open so you can refer to it in the coming moments. I'll sing a solo while you read. Some of you are thinking, oh boy, can't wait to see what this is. Now you understand why I tried desperately to get Donna or Lisa to preach this text this morning. Sorry, Quinn. All right, just leave, those, leave the scripture open so you can glance down at it as you need to and perhaps read it more closely when you get home. 
I was reared in a home that was shaped by my mom's dual commitments. She was raised in New Orleans, and she was a Southern Presbyterian. In combination, that meant speaking respectfully to our elders. It meant that I was to take responsibility for my actions. And it meant that I was not supposed to go to Mardi Gras. I was raised to hold the door open for others, especially women, and to say yes sir and no sir, yes ma'am and no ma'am. And I thought for a long time that was pretty much the way everybody was reared until I learned that it wasn't. I can't remember how old I was or where I was, but I remember the lesson that I learned. <clears throat> I had responded to a question from a, a woman with a yes ma'am. And she looked at me and said, don't say yes ma'am to me. I remember being puzzled that a show of respect, from my point of view, would be taken as a sign of disrespect from her point of view. I didn't know it at the time, but I had just had my first lesson in cross-cultural studies. Since those days, I've traveled a good bit and learned not to be so surprised by the differences in other cultures and customs at least outwardly surprised, I do remember smiling inwardly when, again, I'm not sure which country I was in, but I was eating dinner in a public venue and someone nearby let out a loud belch. And no one seemed to notice. And I thought again at that very moment of my mother and what her reaction would have been if I had done so at her table. Cultures differ, don't they? One from another. Christian missionaries, who have not always been as sensitive to this fact as they are now, are, I would say, especially attuned to this as they encounter cultural differences, as they seek to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be too, because we exist, as Peter says, in many ways as exiles and aliens in this world where we too need to exercise the same sort of discernment. The question is, what is essential to our Christian proclamation and what is only a matter of intriguing difference? The questions involved in these kinds of situations are complex and without easy answers. How, for example, as was the case with a missionary story that I read, how do you speak, as the Bible does, of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to a culture that doesn't know what sheep are? Or how do you speak to a tribal leader who is interested in Christianity but who has many wives? And how do you speak about the Scripture's teaching on marriage in that particular culture? And of course, what's true about cultural differences today has always been the case. It was true 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ entered our world. In some ways, you might think of him as the ultimate cross-cultural missionary. And he turned the world upside down. 
on almost every page of the Gospels, you can feel the, the tension that resulted from Jesus' encounter with the cultural and political and economic and social realities of his time and place. And that tension continued as the church grew and spread. And it continues to this day. Christian witness always has to be contextualized. And if you expect to understand the scriptures correctly, this is especially true with the letters, say, of Paul and Peter. If you want to understand the scriptures correctly, you need to be alert as best you can to your own unexamined assumptions and presumptions and learn something about the world as it was then. The scriptures did not drop out of the sky to us without reference to time and place. They come to us from particular times and places that were themselves shaped by customs and culture. And it was a world that knew nothing of the Renaissance or the Enlightenment or the Reformation or the scientific or the industrial revolutions or of the rise of representative democracies or liberal democratic capitalism with their attendant understandings of freedom and individualism and equality. All of which I should note find their founding influences in our distinctly Christian heritage. In other words, we can't just look back at the past and judge them according to our own virtues and values and say, as, if some, as some are tempted to do today, well, you know, they just should have known better. No. We need to do what we can to see their world as best we can from inside their perspective. And especially when we read these letters of the New Testament, which only give, it as it, give us, as it were, a snapshot into a particular moment in a time and a place. A snapshot, a, a quick glimpse into the difficulties that afflicted these first very young Christian churches that felt every day the threat to their actual being. And if you are not willing to do that, if you don't do that, then you will be tempted to come to a text like this with instructions to slaves and wives, and you'll be tempted to question, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? You might have a stronger reaction. You might say, I knew that this was what Christians go on about. I don't want to have anything to do with this. I also know that because of the careless teaching that some of you grew up with about texts like this, it might have led you to be feeling uncomfortable today as you read these texts. But remember, the, the witness of the church, whether today or in Asia Minor in the first century, is always contextualized. That is, we always seek to convey the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ within the particular given framework of our moment. And it always requires patience, discernment, courage, and love. 
And it always requires us to remember, as Peter says to his churches, just who it is we serve and whose we are. And you might remember back to chapter 2, where Peter says, well, you are a royal priesthood. You have a priestly ministry to the world. You are a chosen people, he says. You are precious to God. You have been bought with a price, the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We have been given new life. We have been guaranteed a future. And we are to think of our own existence in the world as exiles and aliens, not fully at home, whether we are in Bethlehem or Bethesda. Not at home, but we exist here as an outpost of the kingdom of God, emissaries, if you will, ambassadors of that home to this world on a mission to those around us to bear faithful witness to Jesus Christ and perhaps to love our neighbors into the kingdom of God just as surely as you and I have been. Now, I've given you this short course in how to approach the scriptures so we can better understand the two sections that I asked you to, to peruse quickly. Slaves and wives. First, let me just say a word about conditions in first century Asia Minor. Slavery was a fact of life in the Greco-Roman world as it has usually been in the history of humanity all over the globe. But in that particular time, fully one-third of the population of Greece and Italy were slaves. One-third of the populations of those two countries were slaves. And they came from every imaginable race of folks. They were to be found in almost every sphere of life. Some of them had menial responsibilities. Others had administrative positions and filled societal functions like teachers and accountants. Regardless, slaves were not persons. They had no legal standing, and to rebel was to be executed. And not only you, but in certain cases, they gathered as many as a thousand others and had them crucified along the major byways, so to give a very clear message. This is what happens if you dare disrupt the social order. Wives and women generally were only slightly more elevated in their social, social roles. The difference might be summed up, the difference between slaves and women, in this way. A slave had no recourse against a harsh master. But at least Greco-Roman law condemned spousal abuse. But women, nonetheless, were still considered inferior to men, to be sure. And there was no sense, no sense, and I think this is probably the hardest thing for us to get our minds around. There was no sense of individual rights or dignity. The other important thing to remember is that these sorts of household codes that we get here in 1 Peter and elsewhere in the scripture can be found throughout the ancient world. 
giving instruction to masters and slaves, to husbands and wives, to parents and children. Because it was such a serious matter to disrupt the social order and the moral framework of society and the family unit. So, in light of these conditions that I've just sketched for you, how are we to understand Peter's instructions here? Well, I want you to look carefully. Christians were often charged with being instruments of that very kind of social disorder. Rumors abounded about what Christians did when they got together. They meet at night. They're naked. They call everybody brother and sister, and they talk about love, and they have orgies. They disregard the family unit. They practice cannibalism because they talk about drinking blood and eating flesh. That was the word on the street about Christians. Now, Peter wants to help his young churches by allaying the fears of the governing authorities. He wanted to demonstrate that those charges against Christians were rumors, they were scurrilous, and that they were false. Christians were not revolutionaries, at least not in the way the pagan culture feared. And think about slaves and women in that environment. Christians in subservient roles were always walking a very difficult line. They endured the scrutiny of their neighbors and their families because they would no longer worship pagan gods that were so central to the life and culture of the time. The worship of pagan gods took place in every household and in public shrines. But Christians were not allowed to worship any longer at the foot of those pagan gods. That made them an object of curiosity at least, and suspicion and persecution at worst. And Peter is saying, in your living, Christians, in your day-to-day -day life, there is enough to give, to give offense to your non-Christian neighbors. Don't put any unnecessary stumbling block before them as you seek to witness to them as Christ's people. Make no mistake, this was a revolution to be sure, but it was based, as we shall see, on goodness and not on violence. Peter writes here to slaves and wives who had become Christians while their masters and husbands had not, at least not yet. But before addressing slaves and wives, back in the paragraph that Barbara read for us, notice how he addressed all Christians in verse 16. He says, live as people who are free. Live as people who are free as you live as bond slaves of Jesus Christ. That's a little confusing. Is Peter here just speaking sort of political doublespeak? Quite the contrary. 
It sounds confusing to us because the air that we breathe and the water we drink contains ideas about freedom that are sub-Christian. We are convinced in the West that nothing should interfere with our personal autonomy, that freedom is always freedom from those who would restrain us. With that view, is it any wonder that in our day, the bonds of affection are everywhere strained in our culture? That every potential commitment made is done so with an eye toward being able to get out of it? Is it any wonder then that families are feeling the stressors of relationships that are not fully formed? Our middle schoolers are in the habit of being on their phones and they're on their way to visit a friend and suddenly they get a text from the cool kid in class inviting them to do something else. And so they ditch their old friend in order to go be with the cool kids. Whatever commitments we make are always provisional commitments because something better might come along. And you know what? Those middle schoolers grow up to be us. Is it any wonder that loneliness and relational insecurities are the real pandemic in our world? But Christian freedom is not measured in terms of freedom from. It is rather that we are all, every single human being, we are all captives. We are all bond slaves to something. Everybody serves something or somebody. Every human being is a dependent being of necessity. What is one thing that you possess you are not beholden to somebody else for. And yet we talk glibly about our autonomy. The question then is not who's trying to keep me from becoming something, but instead an idea of freedom that asks, in whose service will we be most free to become who we were meant to be? It is an understanding of freedom that is closely linked to human flourishing and purpose. In whose care will you be free to become what God created you to be? The Christian understands what Peter is saying here. Christians are those who have turned away from allegiances to false gods and turned toward the true God. In his service... In relationship to him, we are free to become who we were meant to be in a way that we could not otherwise become. That's why Peter can write to slaves and wives as he does. Even though, he says, you cannot hope to change your circumstances. You can't take up placards and walk down to the mall and protest a recent decision of the Caesars. You have no options open to you. But even though you cannot change your outward circumstances, you are possessed of a knowledge that defines you. You are no longer a non-person. You are no longer defined by what your culture says about you. 
You are no longer without standing. You are in Jesus Christ. You are of immeasurable worth. You have been bought with a price, set free from the bonds of sin and death through the gracious offer of the Son of God. And in your station in life, you might suffer, but you no longer suffer as those without hope or purpose. You instead have your own suffering transformed. You suffer as Christ suffered before you, as he suffered for the sake of the unbelieving masters and husbands of this world. You are in Christ. In Christ, you are free in his loving service. Why wouldn't you want to be in his service? All of us, I think, are grateful that we no longer live in those conditions that held in first century Asia Minor. I would remind you that there are many millions of people around the world today who still find themselves in conditions very similar to what Peter is describing here in his letter. But all of us are grateful that we don't live in that sort of environment. You are in Christ, and you have been set free from all of those false allegiances and taskmasters that actually would only work to your destruction. Why wouldn't you want to be in his service? For after all, who else can know you in honesty, in all of your shame and sorrow, in all of your grief and pride and arrogance and fear? Who else can know you and forgive you and raise you from death to new life, give you a new start? Who else would you want to be with? Who else is worthy of your life? A bond slave. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15, there was a custom. Israel had no permanent slave class unlike the other cultures that surrounded them. If a person was poor, he or she could indenture themselves to a master for a period of six years. In the seventh year, they were set free. But in that seventh year, a servant was then free to choose to enter freely into service of his old master for the rest of his life. And as a sign of that decision, he would walk to the doorpost and have his ear pierced as a way of saying, I have thrived under your authority. Where else would I want to be? So it is with every Christian who says that Jesus Christ is Lord. We say it in a different way when we go down into the waters of baptism 
we die to our own selves and rise to new life in Christ, we are saying, whether it's having your ear pierced in that Old Testament way or walking into the waters of baptism, we are saying, as Peter said to Jesus in John chapter 6, where else would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. So it is. Pierce my ear, O Lord. Take me to your door this day. I belong to you. And then my final comment. No one here, as I said, would want to go back to that way of life that was the first century ancient world. But what I want you to see here is what is only hinted at and easily missed. So if you still have those Bibles open, look at 3 verse 7. We catch a glimpse here of the kind of thing I'm talking about. We catch a glimpse of nothing less than the revolution that is coming to marriage in the ancient world, thanks to Jesus Christ. What do you read there in verse 7? Husbands, show honor to your wives. They are heirs of the grace of life with you. Every husband who read that text would have been stunned in first century Asia Minor. Stunned in the same way that they would have been stunned to read the words of Paul in Ephesians 5, which starts with the very familiar words that we think are really scandalous. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. No woman reading that text would even blink at it. It was just standard. Well, tell me something I don't know, she would have said. But the men would have read, and husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What? Scandalous words. Unheard of words. The first words of a revolution in the relationship between husbands and wives. Because in Jesus Christ, the institution of marriage moved from a hierarchy of being to a relationship of mutuality and shared love. What about slaves? Well, here I would point you to the little letter less than a page long from Paul to a man named Philemon. Philemon had a slave whose name was Onesimus. It was a pun of a name. Onesimus in Greek means useful. He had run away to Rome, and there, through the grace of God, he had encountered Paul. This runaway slave was legally liable for execution if it became known that he was such. But Paul sees an opportunity. And Onesimus, after he had come to Christ, is given a letter by Paul to his owner, Philemon. And Onesimus is sent back to Philemon. In that letter, Paul says to Philemon, I hope that you will receive back this man, Onesimus, that he would be useful to you in this way, that you would receive him no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ, that you would forgive him and see him for the man that he is. In both cases, for wives and for slaves, who we are in Jesus Christ subverts the hierarchy of the whole ancient world.
That, friends, is what's coming. Women and men no longer treated in terms of social status, but with the dignity that stems from each person being made in the image of God. So daughters of an apostle start to prophesy in church. Women start churches in Philippi. And as regard to slaves, we are privileged to have in our possession some letters that were written after our New Testament. One of those letters is written by a man named Ignatius, who is being taken to Rome to be executed for his Christian faith. But along the way, he, has, he is welcomed by the cities through which he passes. And one of those cities was Ephesus. And we have a collection of the letters that Ignatius wrote back to those cities to thank them for their hospitality as they welcomed him and cared for him and his Roman keepers as they were walking him to Rome to be killed. And in his letter to the Ephesian church, he writes, and may I just say, how fortunate you Ephesian Christians are to have such an estimable bishop as you have in Onesimus. The revolution is coming. But it's a revolution not of violence, but of goodness. The transformation that happens within the body of Christ so we no longer see each other according to the ways the world sees us, but according to who we are in Jesus Christ. So a former slave named Onesimus becomes useful indeed as a bishop in the church of Jesus Christ. Friends, that is a revolution of love. And that is the church of Jesus Christ. Let's be that. Will you pray with me? Lord, give us the grace to apprehend just a small portion of what you have done for us in Christ. And take that seed and water and nurture it so that it grows in us. So that more and more we become almost desperate to see ourselves hungry for more of the kingdom of God. Hunger and thirst for more of your righteousness in our own being to hunger and thirst for more of your righteousness in this body of Christ called National Presbyterian Church, to want to see our influence grow for the sake of the kingdom, not for our own reputations. We give you thanks, Lord, for those who have gone before us, who have walked where we have yet to walk. We thank you for their wisdom, but we thank you most of all for the grace you have shown us in Jesus Christ. May our hearts leap to give you praise. In his name we pray. Amen.